So the first reading was Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Then our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, so they say that Da Vinci took four years to paint the Mona Lisa. You'll be glad to know we're not going to spend that much time this morning on our message. Um, but there is obviously, when we come to Jesus, a depth of knowledge that we have about him. A portrait that we can paint about him that changed the whole entire world from the moment that he lived. And as we come to Jesus specifically in this series, we come to painting a portrait of the most important individual in the whole of history itself. So much so, as I said earlier, that God saw fit for people to write four biographical accounts of his life, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all with different intended audiences, uh, all with different perspectives, slightly, but all with one purpose, to show us who this Jesus really is. And what a picture they paint. What a picture they paint of him. You flick into the New Testament, and Matthew's Gospel opens with a genealogy, and you might think, well, that's quite heavy. <laughs> Start off with the genealogy of his family line. But it's his family history. Written to a Jewish audience, it made complete sense for God to show how Jesus followed in the family line of King David of Jewish history. The king of whom God said, one day, one day will arrive a king who is even greater than David, the greatest king of Israel. You've got Mark's gospel. The shortest of the four, 
punchy, action-packed. If you want to get straight into the action, this is the one to read. It's the earliest written and focuses on the miracles of Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God. You've got Luke, the doctor's gospel, written by a non-Jew for those who weren't necessarily Jews. It's detailed, it's meticulously researched from eyewitness uh, accounts of what happened. He's a doctor, the details are going to be there. If you're a details and facts person, Luke is definitely the one for you to have a look at. And for any of you who need to know, the sacrifice of Jesus was for every tribe, tongue, and nation for all of history. From that point, Luke is writing to the Gentiles. He makes that point. And then John's Gospel. It's the most thematic of the four. Two-thirds of John's Gospel dedicated to just the last week of the life of Jesus. Painting a picture of him as the incarnation of truth. The light of the world. And the one who grants life in all of its fullness and abundance for those who believe in his name. And that's before you even get into what is contained in the Gospels. And if you've ever read any of the Gospels, you'll see there's so much within them that, that, that point us to the essence of what Jesus' message was. I mean, you see it, for example, in the responses that people gave to Jesus when he was on the earth. Uh, from what we read earlier, from, the, from a virgin girl who's told she'll give birth to the Savior of the world, to Joseph who's told that he will be Emmanuel, God with us. The responses of shepherds, of angels, magi from the east, Simeon at the temple, even tyrants like King Herod who felt threatened by the arrival of this king. He confounded the religious leaders at just an early age, even in his earliest days. John the Baptist declared as he saw him at a distance walking towards him, coming to be baptized, as he came into sight, said, Here is the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. He discussed with the Samaritan lady, a lady with a shady past. He was able to tell her everything about her life and call her to salvation in him. Pilate, declaring to the crowds those famous words as he presented Jesus to the masses, Behold the man. Saying you could find no fault in him at all. And yet still they shouted, crucify him. What about that thief who hung next to him on the cross? Who simply said as an act of faith, Jesus, this day, this day, I know I've done wrong. You haven't though. Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus was able to look him in the eye and say to him, truly I tell you, today, this very day, you are going to be with me in paradise. 
What about the centurion standing, watching the events of the cross? A procedure that he would have overseen so many times before. He knew how to kill people. The Romans knew how to do it well in the most agonizing ways. And yet even he, standing back as darkness fell on the earth, even he, as Jesus breathed his last and he heard his last words, he could only stand back and say, truly this man was the Son of God. He had seen it all before, and yet he had never seen anything like this. What about the moment on Easter Day in an empty tomb? Mary Magdalene rushing to find the disciples, able to tell them, I have seen the Lord. And just a few hours later, they would see them too. Right through to his final moments with his followers, where he's about to leave them, and he tells them that he's not going to abandon them. This isn't just a a bye-bye forever, see you in heaven sometime. He says, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And we haven't even begun to look at his miracles, the letters of the New Testament that talk about him, the books of the Old Testament that build up to him, from Genesis to Revelation, the portrait we get of Jesus is absolutely stunning. It's the greatest work of art we could ever know. And that's what the second half of this series is all about, who he is, what he came to do, and why it matters. And today, in fact, we are going to look at the most incredible of miracles in the entire Bible, and in fact, the whole of history. It's even more incredible, in fact, than creation itself. It's even more incredible than the resurrection. You might think it's strange for me to say that, but when we think about what happens in this, uh, in this particular truth, it is. The most incredible miracle in the Bible actually starts at the very beginning of the Gospels. The raising of a dead body to life is amazing. The resurrection of the Son of God so that we might have the possibility of following him to new life. That is all staggering. But I tell you what, the greatest miracle was at the very start. It truly was. And here's how the Gospel writer John spoke of it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the miracle. Here's the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is this, that the almighty and all-powerful God who created the heavens, the earth, everything that is contained in us, every beauty we see around us, the stars and the galaxies, who brought it all into being, would not just intervene in a world that has gone astray, that he would not just do something from far off 
to intervene in a fallen world. What does he do? He folds his awesomeness and his majesty and his power. And as the Bible tells us, he humbled himself to be like one of us. To walk in our shoes. To live a life very similar to ours, and yet at the same time, so very different from ours. That's the greatest miracle that God would come in human flesh. And so it makes complete sense that a statement of faith would include a statement of what we call the incarnation, the coming of God in human form to the world that he has made. Or as the statement itself puts it, so it says, we believe in the incarnation of God's eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, truly divine and truly human, yet without sin. And again, this truth is primary. You can't have a person able to save us without the incarnation, God in flesh being true. So let's look at this and the foundational truth. First of all, that Jesus is human and divine, one person, two natures. And the emphasis is on the and part. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, truly God, truly human. He's not a bit human, and he's not a bit divine. You can't cut him in two and say that half is human and that half of him is divine. And it's not as if you can put a divine essence and a human essence into a, into a blender and mix it all up together, and somehow when you come out of it, you've got someone who is that to make the person Jesus. The stunning truth that we have is that in Jesus Christ, we have someone who is both fully God at the same time as being fully human. He's one person, indivisible, unmixed, but someone who has these two natures, these two distinct natures that we read about. And and this kind of arrangement, when we talk about something like this, and, and, and sorry on my part, but you know, he is God, um, it's a bit like the Trinity. It ends up being a mystery as to how it all works. How can an infinite God end up in a finite body and still be a person? It's the greatest miracle ever, but it's also one we're never fully going to work out even with what we're saying this morning. But that is what the Bible tells us and shows us. And when we think about it, it must be true, otherwise the gospel itself doesn't work for us. It doesn't work. But we'll come back to that a little later on. Uh, first, let's think about his arrival, his birth. 
The prophet of later Old Testament times, uh, Micah, would declare of his birthplace, uh, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus, 700 years Bethlehem already becomes a focal point for a ruler, we're told, whose origins are from old, to arrive. 700 years later, and an angel appears to Mary, and then Joseph, her fiancé, telling them that Mary has been chosen for a special task and a world-changing honor. And we get told those words that we read earlier on in Matthew's Gospel. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And I know it all sounds a little bit too Christmassy uh, for February, Don't worry, we're not going back to Christmas today. And it's actually quite useful to look at something we're familiar with at another point of year at a different point. Because the birth of Jesus itself is so unique. Now, of course, for anyone who wants to deny anything of the miraculous in our world, of course this kind of idea is going to be far-fetched and ridiculous. A thing of folklore rather than reality. But, you know, as I've said before, the truth is, when you've got to create a God who can do all things, anything is possible. Anything is. That's the reality of it. The usual bounds of physics and biology do not apply in the same way. And we see that not just in Jesus' birth itself, but throughout his life. Just think about it for a second. His ability to calm storms with a word. How does that happen? It's not natural, is it? At least not natural to us. doesn't seem to work. How could he raise a man from the dead? Not naturally speaking, possible? How could he heal those born with physical conditions like blindness or an inability to walk? Uh, I mean, making just a few loaves and fish, a boy's lunchbox, into enough food to feed over 5,000 people. None of that is natural, is it? None of it is just, none of it is natural. And if you can't believe any of those smaller miracles, you're not going to believe the virgin birth, or better, the virgin conception, which is what this is really describing. God, through the Holy Spirit, conceiving a child who is both fully God and fully human, born in a natural way nine months later, but because of how he was conceived, utterly, utterly unique among people. Living an utterly utterly unique life, being utterly unique in all he did. And then, of course, to cap it all, someone who would then die, rise, and ascend to reign in the heavens, retaking his place as the king of the universe in glory. I mean, think about it for a second. 
just take a moment and think about that. When you start thinking about it, you think, crumbs, that almost seems like it is beyond belief. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. It's, it's crazy in that sense. Because God coming to this earth as a human being does seem a bit like that. It's beyond us. And yet this is what we read he chose to do for us. In fact, it's why, as we read from Matthew's gospel, he would be called Emmanuel. The angel told him that, told Joseph that, didn't he? Emmanuel, he says, God with us. That was his curtain call as the gospel opens. And now displaying to you, God with us. This is the portrait I'm going to paint. And you can see how he was God in the things that he did. You know, I've written on the handout the technical terms omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Sound good, don't they? Well, all three are attributed to Jesus, either during his life or following it. So the things that he did, he was omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He could still the waves with the word. He could do it. He would turn water into wine. He could make food for 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. These were the miracles. They were almost like little local pictures, okay? Little local pictures in front of people on a small scale showing what he did on the vast scale of creating the universe. That's what he's doing. He's showing a creative ability just in the way that he acts and performs these miracles. They were creative acts, nonetheless, that broke the laws of biology and physics that pointed to a bigger reality that had already gone on. And it's because he's all-powerful. He's able to do these things. He's all-knowing. That's omniscient. He knew people's hearts. He knew what they were thinking before they had said it. He knew it was Judas Iscariot who would betray him. He knew when people believed him or didn't believe him. He could tell the Samaritan lady her whole life story without playing any Durham Brown mind games with her. He could simply do it. He knows. He can be everywhere, omnipresent. Now, that's harder to judge when allowing himself to be limited by a purely human body. But even then, you see him doing things that other people can't do. Walking on water, after his resurrection, walking through walls. He does some amazing things. There's a curious little passage um, with Nathaniel uh, at the start of John's Gospel, where Jesus tells him, before he's even physically met him, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Philip had already spoken to him. He knew where Nathanael was, even though Jesus hadn't met him yet. And as a result of him being able to say that, Nathanael is so stunned by it, so stunned that Jesus had already seen him somehow and in some way without him being present, that Nathanael declares him to be the Son of God straight outright. That's before we get to the promise, isn't it? The most wonderful of promises we are given at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that he would be with his people 
always to the very end of the age. That's so reassuring, isn't it? Being with his people always to the end of the age. And that's why we, when we read these things, we are reading about the acts of God himself. You know, that we never get caught in the mindset that Jesus was just a person with some special powers. You know, a prophet who does some good things. He is God, as we read the pages of the Bible, with every right and ability to do all things. <laughs> and he's eternal. Uh, you know, there's a remarkable passage in John 8 where he's debating with some Jews about whether he is greater than even the, the, the pin-up, the poster person of the Jewish faith, Abraham. Jesus fudges no corners when he declares to them, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, he says, I am. And what's he using there? He's using the very name of God himself. I am. And I am who I am. Prompting one of the many times, in fact, where Jesus is, you know, the, the, the Jewish people try and kill him because they believe he's being blasphemous in saying what he said. You get all these things that point to him as God. Even the fact that he can forgive us. He meets this paralyzed man in Mark 2 where he does the outrageous. It's early in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's only the second chapter, in fact. It's, it's really, really, it's one of the first things we read about him. Mark's seeking to make a point. He's speaking in a house to a load of people, and the house is full. <laughs> you might know this story, it's well known. His friends can't get the paralyzed man to him. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. Well, what should we do? Well, we'll just peel away the whole of the roof structure and we'll lower him down. That's the way we'll get him to Jesus. <laughs> you, you can admire their dedication, can't you? To get this man to him. And as this man is lowered, the religious leaders are sitting there in the room watching Jesus. What's he going to do? What's he going to do here with this strange and odd situation that's come about? And what does Jesus do? stands up in front of them and says, your sins are forgiven. Right in front of the religious leaders who are watching every move he makes. And immediately what do they do? They go, who is this guy? No one forgives except God alone. He's the only one that can do it. Blasphemy, they think. Blasphemy. Must be, surely. And of course, Jesus being God knows what they're thinking. And Jesus says to them, look, what's easier in this circumstance? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. 
Because then you don't have to prove it in any way. How can you tell if someone's sins are forgiven? I mean, what evidence can you give? You can't prove it. You can say it easily, but where's the proof? What does Jesus then do? He says, well, just to prove the point then, I'll do something else. I'll heal him. He looks the man in the eye and says, get up, take your mat, walk. And the man who's been lame since birth gets up off the ground in front of the religious leaders, in front of the people, stands, takes up his mat, begins skipping out of the house so that we can know that he can forgive sins. If he can heal a man like that, then you've got to believe what else he can do. The people declare We've never seen anything like this. Too right, you haven't. And be it those crowds watching his miracles, the centurion at the cross, or doubting Thomas who fell down before him, declaring, my Lord and my God, that was who people came to him to know, came to realize who he was. And yet his humanity also shone through, didn't it? It also shone through. Times he chose not to operate as divine, times where he identified with us what it means to be human. Uh, In Gethsemane, great example, he permitted the horrors of his impending death to affect him deeply. Praying even, you know, not my will but yours be done. If If this can pass from me, Lord, please make it so, but I'll do what you wish. And then he comes out of the garden and he is the picture of serenity and peace, and in control as he then faces the authorities and his impending death. Uh, What about Lazarus, where we get the shortest verse in the Bible, that as his friend, his dear friend, lies dead, we read two little words. Jesus wept. How much more human can you be? Very human. What about his times of rest, needing to withdraw for periods to pray? He's very human. He ate and drank with his disciples, even after the resurrection. Very human things to do. We're told in his young life that he grew in wisdom. There was some kind of, in some way, some learning process that he went on himself. Faster and with more wisdom than anyone else has ever seen. It's why he shocked the religious leaders when he spoke to them at about age 12 or 13 in Jerusalem. They were astounded at his wisdom. But it was still a human process of some sort. The fact he didn't know some of the times set by his father. He limited himself. And that's before you get to the many examples of his identifying with people with compassion and grace. And it's in those things that we see both his divinity on one hand and we see too that he is so very human like one of us on the other hand as well. And do you know what that tells us? It tells us that he is fully able to identify with everything you and I go through in life. 
fully able to identify with that, fully able to understand the human condition and what it's like, fully able to weep with the hurting, to sit with the condemned, to understand fear itself and overcome it, and potentially the most important of all, to be tempted by the claws of sin itself and triumph over it. Which gets us to the, to the next point, that Jesus was sinless and able. And this really does get us to the heart of how Jesus is the same and yet so very different from us, doesn't it? It really, really, really does. That though human, he never sinned. He never took on sin's nature in order that he could be the only person to save us from the very same thing, the problem of sin and death. Now, we're going to come back to this in a little bit more detail when we do sacrifice and salvation next week. But we can't touch on him being fully man and fully God without actually making the point of him being fully man and fully God and yet not sinning. It's that he could be one of us and yet do what we can't do. That he could prove in the way that he was on earth that he could overcome sin and that he could pay a sacrifice, therefore, that none of us could pay except in our own deaths. Because that was the punishment, a separation from God forever. Jesus became human because he could, he could then do what we could not do. He alone was God and he alone was sinless and able to be all that we are not, like us, but not us. Now, of course, we all know what temptation is like, and we all know what it is to sin, you know, from the, from the silly things to the serious. You know, it's, it's true to say, isn't it, that often if you walk along and you see a sign like, um, don't step on the grass, what do you immediately want to do? You want to step on the grass, don't you? <laughs> There's a little thing inside of you that wants to step on the grass. There was a story of a lady who had to apologize for the conduct of her husband during shopping trips because he got so bored and became a nuisance to the store. They sent her a letter saying, Dear Mrs. Murray, we thank you for your valued patronage and use of our store loyalty card. The manager of our store is considering banning you and your family, though, from shopping with us, unless your husband stops his antics. Below is a list of just some of the offenses over the past few months, all verified by our surveillance cameras. July the 2nd, set all alarm clocks in housewares to go off at five-minute intervals. 14th of August, moved a caution wet floor sign to a carpeted area. 4th of October looked right into the security camera and used it as a mirror to pick his nose. 3rd of December darted around the store suspiciously, loudly humming the Mission Impossible theme. 18th of December hid in the clothing rack and yelled, Pick me, pick me. <laughs> and then went into a fitting room, shut the door, then yelled very loudly, There's no toilet paper in here. Yours sincerely, store manager. It's a silly example, isn't it, of a serious point. 
that temptation is real and we all face it and we all fall foul of it in many ways. And yet when we see the life of Jesus, when we see what he did, we find someone who we're told was tempted in every way just as we are. And yet, vitally, he did not sin. That was the crystallization of his life and the meaning of his death. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Somehow, in some way, Uh, In living a life we could not live and dying a death in a manner that we could not die due to sin, he in some mysterious and God-ordained way could take upon himself the sins of the entire world. Everything we've done wrong for every single person and in some mysterious way die on our behalf because he was in our nature and pass on his righteousness to each person who would believe in him. His right standing is what righteousness means. Right standing onto us sinners who don't deserve it and cannot earn it. And as we think about who he is, you get the point about all of this. In order to do that, he had to be God for it to make any difference. If he'd just been a man, it might have been a very good example of sacrifice. Might possibly have been making some kind of a point. But in order for it to make any difference for us, he's got to be God as well. Because that's where the power is. And that is what God has done for us. He died fully as one of us and fully as God to do what we can't do. And there was that wonderful truth that we read in the the readings at the start. That it's for that reason. Hebrews tells us quite straightforwardly that we can have a little thing called confidence confidence something we all need confidence to approach God's throne of grace to receive mercy and help in times of need in Jesus we can have that confidence confidence that through repentance and faith He's not going to reject us. Confidence if we've truly committed ourselves to him. He's not just going to pass us by or look us over. But confidence because in Jesus, he has given us his righteousness, his right standing. And Jesus has taken our punishment upon himself so that we don't have to.
That is the greatest of truths we can ever, ever know. Now, how does this truth shape us then in closing? How does it shape who we are? Well, number one, uh, as, as was implied earlier on, it means that Jesus can help us in our temptations. We read those words, for we do not have a high priest who, are na- uh, is, who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Uh, you know, the, the call of Jesus on our lives is, is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that we cash in when we die and can therefore live our lives however we want in the meantime. The incarnation does not tell us that, and it certainly does not show us that. The incarnation, in fact, shows the person who lived authentically for God, who grants us the example that we should be seeking to emulate, even if we're never quite going to be able to do it perfectly. And he calls us to do the same. Now, we can never be perfect. We know that full well. But if we believe Jesus was perfectly sinless and overcame every temptation, it tells us one thing, that we always have a choice with these things, that there is always a way out, because we've taken upon ourselves himself, his spirit, we can overcome. And I'm not saying that as well. I'm not saying that to condemn people when they sin, though Jesus calls us to real change in life. We're to live a holy life. We are to do that. We're told that time and again in the Word of God. That's what this series tells us. But I say that as well to the addict. I say that as well to the habitual sinner who feels trapped in a certain sin. You know, with Jesus... Because of what he did, we always have the power to make a choice. We are never powerless against it. Sin is not inevitable. And he proved that in his own life. You know, it's the devil who tells us, oh, you're just going to give in, so why hesitate? You know, why fight it? It's the devil who tells us that. It's the devil who offers us the world as he did Jesus, hoping we'll capitulate to a lesser decision. But it's Jesus himself who proves that that inevitability is false. That sin does not have ultimate power over us anymore. That it's not inevitable. We always have the power to make a choice. Even if we need friends to help us in that, even if we need accountability to help us through, particularly in, in, in seasons where there are addictions in place with people, we need accountability for those things. We need a church family. But there is always a choice, isn't there? Always a choice. And we have the strength in Christ to make it. And that's hope, not condemnation. Remember it when we're next tempted. Uh, Number two, it elevates our worship. It's the most magnificent of miracles, as I said earlier, that the Almighty God would humble himself to a human person to die on our behalf. That's awesome. There is no two ways about it. It forms the heart of our life of worship. The centerpiece of our church has to be him that he has done and able to do far more than all we ask or imagine. He's already done it. 
He's therefore so worthy of our worship. It influences how we come into church on a Sunday, what we do when we leave the walls of this building and go about our day-to-day lives. He forms the heart of it, of all all that we do. He takes the priority, worth giving up, putting up before everything else in this life. At number three, he deepens our trust. Quite simply, the gospel works. I've said it before. We can trust it to do its work as well because we trust the one who made it possible in the first place. God and man have been reunited in Christ. What's that a picture of? Exactly what he did for us. Reunited God and man together. Us people with him. As Hebrews 4 would tell us, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the hope we profess. Holding firm to hope means holding firm to the one who gives us that hope. Jesus. Keeping him uppermost in our minds. The message that enables it. That's the gospel. Able to save us because of all that Jesus is all that he became, and all that he did. And it works. If you know and love Jesus, by the way, you're living proof of that. The question we often have to ask ourselves is, how do we show we're living proof of that to others? Something for us to think about. And finally, number four, this truth better enables us to pray. Because, of course, when we pray, we're coming before a God who does know us, who knows the human condition, who knows all about us, who has experienced a life among us, who knows every trial, trouble, temptation that we face. And therefore, we're able to commune with him even more deeply when we pray. Reminds us that prayer is such a good thing that we can do and that he is made possible. And so when we come before him in prayer, let's remember all he's done for us. Remember that he's the God who's one day going to heal the world. Jesus who is one day going to return and make all things right again. And in the meantime, we ask him to help us live for him and give him all the glory. We believe the incarnation of God's eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, truly divine and truly human, yet without sin, because it means the world and so much more to us. Let's pray. Lord, in the most magnificent of miracles, as we consider Jesus, the eternal God come in human flesh. Lord, we praise you for that is the most awesome of miracles. He is the most awesome of gifts given to us. Not just to lead a life of 
example for us, a life of love towards those he met, a life that challenged people, a life ultimately that would do so that it would lead to his death. And yet, a task and a purpose that before the ages began, you already had in mind, which was to come and save your people. And so we praise you that in him we see the divinity of Jesus, his ability to save, the power that he had and has, the power he has now, that he works into our very lives. We thank you, Lord God, that we have a choice with you, that we have a choice to overcome, that we have a great Savior of his people, whom we can look to in every circumstance, and whom we can trust, not just with our lives, but with our very death as well. Because he rose from the grave, death could not hold him as the perfect, sinless sacrifice on our behalf. We praise you for his divinity. And yet we also, Lord, praise you for his humanity, that he is able to identify with us in our need, in our weakness, in what we struggle with, in our hurts and pains, in the rejections we face, in the difficulties of life that we come up against so, so often. He knows. He's experienced it. He's seen it in others. And therefore, he's able to walk alongside us. And we praise you for his ability to grant us hope and reassurance in light of it. And so as we go into our weeks, Lord God, and as we think about how this truth shapes us, Help us to live for you. That as we think about all that he's done for us, may we shine that same light in who we are and what we do to those around us. That we would display the love of Jesus to other people. That we would be about the business of the hard truths of sharing your gospel with other people as the opportunity arises. Help us to be that people. Help us to be encouraged to do that. To have the assurance to do it. To have the confidence to be a people of your word and of your power. And may you therefore work in us to make all those things possible too. We commit this to your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing one more song as we come to a close. This, I believe. Uh, those joining us online are going to leave us after this song. But let's stand together and declare what we believe.